number is that 65% of people who are currently incarcerated will be home within the next five years. What type of men and women do you want released to your communities? It's no longer only people going to the inner cities. We're going to rural and suburban America. We're going to everywhere, USA. And mm-hmm. you want people who have been sitting around for five years being abused, uh, that, that that have no uh, no autonomy and they and no autonomy whatsoever in our lives. We can't determine what we wear, when, and what we eat. Uh, we can't determine if we go left or if we go right. Everything is dictated towards us. I mean, uh, everything is dictated for us. Um, and then we're released into these communities. Uh, with exacerbated mental health issues, with exacerbated physical ailments, and we're told to to thrive. with the ghouls next door the media literacy show from a horror lens where we explore the real life historical and happening right now reasonings behind our cinematic fears and this month and the month before we have been doing a series called haunted where we have explored haunted people haunted homes haunted underwater homes haunted attractions and recently haunted prisons. As part of that specific episode, we thought it would be important to shine some light and bring in some voices that are more knowledgeable on the subject of our incarceration system than just the ghouls. It has always been a goal for the ghouls to invite others to talk on our show and to use our platform to amplify the voices of those who are doing the work uh, for the topics and the themes and the issues that we see discussed on film and for those who are outright affected by the things that we have seen on screen that are horrifying and things in the real world that are equally horrifying to what we're seeing on screen. And what we found with our exploration of haunted prisons was how very haunted and horrifying the prison system is. And so it was very important to us to open up the the dialogue for uh, discussion um, from the ground of what people are experiencing and some of the horrible things that are going on there. I know a lot of people aren't as privy to that information. Um, Not everyone is fully aware of of the horrors that happen in our incarceration system. And we, in our last week's episode, did share quite a lot of resources and recommendations for films that you can watch, documentaries you can watch, and I very highly, highly recommend that you do that, as well as reading books like Michelle Alexander's The New Jim Crow, and really educating yourself on what is going on. But on today's episode, we will be featuring two special interviews that I did with um, two amazing individuals who are working in their own way and from their own points of view on the very issues that we're going to be talking about. And so um, one of my guests is Pam Superville, who is the deputy director of the Office of Reentry Partnerships here in Philadelphia, and she works with people re-entering and uh, equipping them with the resources and tools that they need to get back into the world and be able to get on with their lives. And it is not an easy task 
Similarly, the other guest I'm talking to is also helping people who are reentering, um, although his point of view is a little different. So uh, Tyree Wallace, who is currently incarcerated for a crime he did not commit since 1997, um, he is the founder of the Man Up Association, which is a peer support and empowerment group that does work both inside the walls of SCI Phoenix and on the outside to help those preparing for release. He is also a founder of the Pennsylvania Lifers Association branch, and the organization has sponsored a family forum for inmates serving life sentences, has developed a youth awareness group, and has coordinated charitable drives to purchase winter coats and school supplies for needy children and to make donations to the Big Brothers Big Sisters Association and a shelter for victims of domestic violence. And you'll hear in my interview with Tyree that there's no end to the amount of work that he has been doing even where he is. And so I hope that you learn a lot from both of these folks and how the world is for people who are re-entering or are currently incarcerated and the challenges that they're suffering. And I hope that the biggest takeaway is some understanding. It's just meeting them on their level, knowing the, the struggles that they have to go through and that they are people at the end of the day and that we need to hear them and help them in any way that we can and try to change or disrupt the system that we currently have, which is incredibly harmful. And yeah. Um, so I, I hope you enjoy this episode um, of The Ghouls Next Door. Remember to rate and subscribe. Leave us a comment if this is something that you are interested in. If you'd like to see more instances of us talking to folks um, out there doing the work based on things that we're talking about, we would really love to hear from you. And if you are someone who's doing the work, let us know as well. And there we go. In the latter half of the 20th century, companies closed down factories in American cities and moved them to places where they could pay workers less. Jobs that allowed people to save for their future were snatched away. America's prohibition on many recreational drugs and the boarding up of factories supercharged the drug economy. Some people took to substance use after being laid off. Others took jobs selling drugs, seeking fast money instead of languishing in low-wage jobs. These illegal economies encourage violence as people try to protect their merchandise and their lives. Add to that a racist war on drugs that has ripped people from our communities and the misery becomes clearer. But we can end this toxic drug economy and the drug war that feeds mass incarceration. We can decriminalize drugs and create jobs programs. We could have regulated dispensaries and safe consumption sites where people could obtain drugs legally and use them in a safer manner. We could provide social services and addiction counseling. By legalizing drugs, we could cut down on the violence that happens in the drug economy and also cut down on overdose deaths. And by creating jobs programs, offering guaranteed meaningful work that pays livable wages, we could provide an alternative to working on the corner. Where factories stand vacant, people could build low-cost housing and community centers. People who previously sold drugs could work at dispensaries or become peer counselors. As we face the realities of climate change, we could employ people to build community-based agriculture programs and other sustainable solutions. 
The possibilities for meaningful work which heals our communities is only as limited as our imagination. But how could we fund all this? Well, that's easy. We could tax the rich and also reduce bloated police and prison budgets. There are a lot of rich people who made a killing by creating this problem. We need the political courage to make them fix it. All right, well, um, why don't we get started? Uh, absolutely. Awesome. Um, could you first uh, introduce yourself and just tell us a bit about who you are? Um, absolutely. Um, first of all, I'm extremely grateful for the opportunity to, uh, to speak with you all. Um, my name is Tyree Wallace. Um, uh, for the past 25 years, I have been incarcerated uh, in the state of Pennsylvania. Uh, a little background on that, I have been incarcerated for a crime in which I had absolutely no involvement. Mm-hmm. Um, I have been, uh, for the past 10 years, represented by the Pennsylvania Innocence Project, who has been working to try to have my name cleared and get me released from prison. Um, I came into contact with the Institute of Community Justice um, and the director at the time, her name was Asada Thomas. She is the person who connected me with you all, Mm -hmm. and here we are. Yes, awesome. Um, Could you tell us a bit about, like, your interactions with the Innocence Project, like how that um, connection was made and maybe some of, like, the support that they offer? Um, uh, Absolutely. So So, again, I've been incarcerated for 25 years, and I've been trying to clear my name ever since. Um, uh, so the Innocence Project has a stringent, um, procedure and process, uh, before they decide to represent someone. So it took me, you know, uh, at least 10 years of trying to have them represent, to represent me for them to actually, uh, to do their investigative process, to check into me, to check into witnesses, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, for them to agree to take my keys. Um, so, you know, I, I actually uh, really appreciate the process that they actually have because when the Innocence Project represents someone, you can, you can, you know, you can be certain that they've done their due diligence and they have a clear understanding of the case and that they absolutely believe in their innocence before they put their stamp of approval on someone. Mm-hmm. So, you know, there's been a, so there's been a, there's been a mountain of evidence that has come forward that uh, points to my innocence, that proves my innocence from my perspective, and uh, it's still coming out to this day, even 25 years later. So, an example of some of that evidence is uh, eyewitness testimony. So, there was only eye well, there was only one eyewitness. He came and he came forward said he saw who killed the person, that it was not me, that I was not involved, and not only that, that one of the corrupt officers in my case tried to make him say that it was me. Mm. Um, That's a a piece of evidence that came forward. One of the pieces, another piece of evidence that came forward that was kind of like the icing on the cake from my perspective for the Unisys Project was I took and passed a court-qualified polygraph examination. So... Mm -hmm. uh, I was. I had all this evidence. I was looking for help. I was trying to raise money for attorneys. I was doing all these type of things, and I was not. Just, I just wasn't receiving the help. So I was like, "Man, I need something to help put this over the top." And so, uh, you know, I raised some money through a couple of different fundraisers with the help of my my late mother um, at the time, and uh, we uh, raised enough money to be able to hire 
who's a, you know a, a nationally renowned polygraph expert to pass the polygraph test on top of all of the informa- other information that I had that really interested the Innocence Project. And as a result, they wound up taking my case and they've been fighting by my side ever since. Um, some of the resources that they bring along is they bring college students who um, you know, reviewed every facet of my case. They've uh, filed, they've filed appeals and petitions on my behalf. They are currently representing me in the commutation process, which is a little tricky for someone who is innocent of the crime because the commutation process is not specifically designed for my situation. Mm-hmm. However, we are utilizing every possible avenue to get out of prison. Um, they've really been invaluable in a lot of different ways, and I'm grateful and fortunate to have them. Yeah, that sounds really amazing, and I'm really glad that you were able to connect with them and get these steps forward. Um, could you Absolutely. tell us a bit about like your experiences? So you've been in there for, for 25 years. Um, I guess, could you walk us through maybe some of the issues or um, maybe even some mental health concerns that you have witnessed or experienced while you were in there? Um, absolutely. I, you know, I, I, again, really want to thank, um, you know, your program, your, your podcast, excuse me, for being willing to shine a light on this side of um, mass incarceration. Mm-hmm. I mean, the because and the reason why I say that is because the media really has a vital role to play in determining the trajectory of this system within our nation. Because many times when you see the media discuss mass incarceration, many times they're holding up our uh, justice system as like as a you know as a paragon a paragon of virtue. Mm-hmm. And when you hold up a flawed biased, racist, and sometimes corrupt system up as a paragon of virtue, that narrative narrative perpetuates Mm -hmm. this cycle of injustice, but it also puts in place barriers and reinforces barriers for those who are seeking seeking justice. Like to give you a prime example of that, um, many times when I articulate my, 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 or proclaim my innocence, one of the, you know, I automatically get a look of, uh, you know, everybody in prison is innocent. Right, I got it. Mm-hmm. And that is perpetuated in the media. You know, so it's a false, it's a, it's a narrative that's based on a fallacy. You know, most of the people in prison are not walking around saying that they are innocent of the crime. That is absolutely not true. So it's based on a fallacy, but it's a dangerous fallacy that really, really hurts. Um, another thing that I've, you know, uh, witnessed, uh, you know, that's based on a, a, a narrative that's pushed on the outside, speaking of some of the horrors in prison, um, one of the things that I think about that's really, really in the forefront of my mind, and it's changed somewhat over the past five to ten years, thankfully, um, for those who were, you know, uh, uh, victims of this situation, is I look at the narrative of the national joke of sexual violence mm-hmm. in prison. I'm not certain if you ever, I'm certain, no, I'm certain that you had. Like, you know, one of the things that you always hear uh, comedians and shows talk about is that if you get locked up, you better not drop the soap. Yeah. Or this is going to happen to you, or that's going to happen to you. And that is a real thing that was taking place in prison. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? Yeah. And especially, especially. 
especially vulnerable men and women in these places were being sexually assaulted repeatedly over and over and over again. Um, youth who were coming and being incarcerated in adult prisons, uh, 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 racial minorities in whatever prison that you're in. So if you're in the, the middle of the country and you are, uh, uh, you know, a, a Latino or black descent, the majority of the prison may be white. And most of, the, most of these other places, the majority of prison are black. And those racial minorities would be attacked. Um, so that, those, those media narratives that we push are really, really important because they have real life consequences on women, men, and even children inside of these walls. So I'm really grateful uh, that you all are trying to shine a light on the totality of the picture. Yeah, I think, you know, one of the biggest things is this um, with the media and just the way that the narratives that are pushed is this dehumanization and this kind of like equating anyone like incarcerated peoples with bad peoples, which is incredibly incorrect. And so I think that helps to push these ideas that we don't have to feel bad when those things happen to those people, because those are not the people that we have been told deserve respect or to be taken care of. And that just further contributes to the issue. 100 100 um i could not have said it better myself i absolutely agree mm -hmm. um have you uh with your time there interacted with anyone um like i don't want you to speak for anyone else's stories but uh perhaps just okay. like um interactions with folks where you have seen uh the harm that being incarcerated for an extended period of time might have had on a person um, absolutely, uh, 100%. Um, so you have just my normal everyday experience of being incarcerated where you can see evidence of these harms all over the place. Um, you know, people deteriorating mentally, physically, spiritually mm -hmm. every day. Um, but then you also have, because, you know, I've created multiple programs, organizations. I actually run a non-profit as we speak. Mm. As a result of that, I'm involved in the lives of the men that are around me, you know, um, and within the outside community. So I have a particular unique uh, insight into some of these, into some of these issues. So on the, in the institution that I am in right now, SCI Smithfield, um, for some reason, it's a particularly older population here at this institution. Mm. So I'm certain that that's like that at a couple of different institutions. So I would think here, I would think at uh, uh, Laurel Highlands, which is like a medical institution, and a couple other institutions like that, you would have a really older population. But you look around and everywhere you see men who are 60, 70, 80 years old who have been incarcerated for decades, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, no exaggeration, mm -hmm. who are literally no harm, who could be no harm to anyone, mm -hmm. um, who could be no harm to anyone just because of their, because of their age, because of the fact that uh, you age out of criminality, <laughs> you mm -hmm. age out of criminality, um, you know, multiple other uh, factors like that, and it's extremely sad. It's extremely 
extremely sad to see these elderly men here suffering in prison with cancer, with diabetes, with all type, with every ailment that you could think of. And then when you think about it, and some, some, some people won't care about that. Some people think that these people should be in here suffering for decades, mm-hmm. maybe 40 years after they've committed a crime. Some people may think that that's perfectly okay. But if you think about the fact of what that costs the taxpayers, mm-hmm. right? So um, I'm going to quote something here from uh, from uh, FAM, which is Families Against Mandatory Minimums. And they say that one person could cost up to $5.7 million. This is um, 70% of lifers were under the age of 30 at the time of their, their crime, which mm. means that Pennsylvania taxpayers could be paying to incarcerate them for 50 years or more. An extraordinarily mm. pricey possibility. For example, if someone enters a prison at 20, moves to a skilled or personal uh, care unit at the age of 55 and lives to be 75, the lifetime cost to incarcerate that one person could be approximately $5.7 million plus inflation. So if you don't care about the humanity of the problem, if you don't care about that someone who's 60, 70, 80 years old no longer causes a threat to society, people should really think about what it costs taxpayers to mm-hmm. keep these people incarcerated at this time. Yeah. And again, one, one of the things that really proves that, that incarceration, that, that people age out of criminality, is when you think about the low recidivism amongst the juvenile lifers mm-hmm. who were let out. So 175 juvenile lifers were let out in Philadelphia who were all originally convicted of homicide. Mm-hmm. And after 21 months, only 1.1% or two people had ever been convicted of any other crime again. Wow. So 1.1% of these people who were sentenced to life were let out. And the numbers are even even more impressive when you talk about people people's sentences being commuted. So, you know, so to, hold, so to have this knowledge, to see the suffering amongst these men and women... And to keep them incarcerated anyway, truly, from my perspective, is intentional, cruel, and unusual punishment. You know that there are no harms to society. You know mm-hmm. that it's harming taxpayers, and yet you keep them incarcerated until they die. Do you feel like um, the processes and just the way that the system is set up now is a space that allows for people to... Do you feel like it's set up for people to grow and learn and change, or do you feel like it's really counteractive to that? Excellent question. It is not set up for rehabilitation. It is not. Set, it is absolutely not set up for people to grow, learn, and change. And this is intentional. This is not. This is not um, incompetency. This is an intentional process, and I can give you a multitude of examples of it. Mm-hmm. Um, so. Every day, when you when you when you look at a prison like this, like this prison here, you have the overwhelming majority of men sitting around on the block all day long, doing nothing, mm-hmm. literally doing nothing, getting older, getting worse, and there is a linear connection to a lot of the things that are happening in our communities and what is and what is not taking place in the. DOC, and particularly in the PDP, which is the Philadelphia Department of 
there is a linear connection because these places are creating worse people. Mm-hmm. So you have to think, a lot of the men and women who are in, who find themselves incarcerated, they come from damaged communities, they have trauma, they come from violent communities, they are arrested, they go to violent, stagnant, oppressive prisons, sit for five or ten years, develop no skills, then they're released back into those same communities in which they already failed, mm-hmm. and now there's restrictions upon them. Now you can't get certain jobs. Now you can't be in certain places. Now you can't live in certain buildings because of what you did in your past and ostensibly paid your your debt to society for. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, in these violent communities. Now, again, I want to make so I want to be clear that people understand who it is that I am as a man. I created an organization called Man Up, which was not about men going up above women. I want to make sure that that's clear. It was mm-hmm. about men living up to their responsibility and taking accountability. So I heard a lot of men complaining about what was going on in their, you know, in their circle or in their, you know, in, in their neighborhoods. So I'm saying, listen, these types of things are going to happen, but what you need to do is man up. And then what we did was we determined what is a man because a lot of people just didn't really have a definition mm-hmm. of what a man would do in certain circumstances. Right. So we, so we, so we determined that. So I just want to be clear that I'm not trying to be this person who says the system, the system, the system, the system, the system. There must be accountability, but there also must be accountability with the system, especially because the system is responsible for creating worse people. And it's intentional. It's mm-hmm. happening on a daily basis. You know, people, so I was just having, a, I literally was just having a conversation with an officer right before this conversation happened. And we were speaking about some of these exact things. And I was telling the officer that what people need to understand is that I believe that the number is that 65% of people who are currently incarcerated will be home within the next five years. What type of men and women do you want released to your communities? There's no longer only people going to the inner cities. We're going to rural and suburban America. We're going to everywhere, USA. And mm-hmm. you want people who have been sitting around for five years being abused, uh, that, that that have no uh, no autonomy and they and no autonomy whatsoever in our lives. We can't determine what we wear, when, and what we eat. Uh, we can't determine if we go left or if we go right. Everything is dictated towards. I mean, uh, everything is dictated for us. Um, and then we're released into these communities. Uh, with exacerbated mental health issues, with exacerbated physical ailments, and we're told told to thrive. Mm-hmm. And, but, on, but not only that, then one, one last thing, then we're circumscribed in these communities. <laughs> we're circumscribed yeah. in these communities because they know they don't want you going anywhere else. You have to stay right there where you're at because we don't want you where we're at. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? We know we know that we've created a monster. You stay right there, you know, right where it is that you're at, and we're not going to let you work. We're not going to let you do these types of things. And you know, there's this incentive to be able to come back to prison. People are prisons are incentivized. Like, um, when you take in, when you take into an account uh, the difference between state-run prisons and private-run prisons, especially private-run prisons. So I think it's the CCCA, which is the Correction Corporation of America, this, pri- this this entity that, you know, pushes private prisons across our nation. They, when you think about the fact that they hand out twice 
infractions in a private prison than they do in state-run government prisons. Why do they do this? It's because there's a financial incentive to lock people up. They have capacity quotas that they have to meet Mm -hmm. and standards that they have to consistently meet. I'm sorry if I'm going all over the place. No, I appreciate it. I'm going all over the place a little bit. It's something that I'm obviously a little passionate about. Um, am I answering your question? Can you please repeat your like, what, what is it that you, what, what was your question again? I want to make sure I'm answering your question. Yeah, no, you've absolutely been answering the question um, because it really is this, you know, you're in, while you're there, you're not given tools or the ability um, to better yourself, improve yourself or any of that because there's this expectation that, you, there's never an end to it. Like you don't get out. Even when you get out, there's all of these systems in place that make it essentially hard for you to move forward and have that rehabilitation. Um, some of that's even just like the lack of technology, like access to technology and how it's always evolving. I'm sure that that's its own set of challenges for folks who first come out. Um, And that compiled on top of what you were saying with the mental health issues, the physical issues, they just get compounded um, because there's nothing in there to, with the expectation that you are going to be a full human when you come out. Yes. Um, Very well said. Like, just think about the fact that I've never held a cell phone. Mm-hmm. The only time that I've only I've seen one on television, I've never held a cell phone. So just you know, just think about that. Like, mm-hmm. like yeah. you know, think about how basic uh, technology and how essential a cell phone is in everyday life for those on the other side of the wall. I've never held one, and so we had this program that we were running here at the institution, and part of what we were trying to do was to get a mock cell phone here in the institution so that the guys who were on their way out, they could, you know, learn how to use a cell phone. Now, this cell phone would have been held by a staff member. It would have never been in the hands of of prisoners, you know, but it was so these people, so these guys could be prepared to be able to utilize the cell phone. They denied it to happen. Mm. Now, mind you, now, mind you, you know, uh, every time you turn around, one of these officers are being walked out for bringing for selling one, for bringing one in and selling one. That's beside the point. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. beside the point. But right, but when we want to utilize it for this positive uh, endeavor to help people prepare for the outside, uh, because I, I can't tell you how many people uh, I'm in contact with who were formerly incarcerated who they have so much trouble just operating their, <laughs> their eyes mm-hmm. they don't know how to do it. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they and- don't know how to do it. Yeah, and that just creates a further gap for, like, job opportunities or just, like, you know, being able to to access that technological world is so imperative now that I can't imagine that hurdle. Absolutely. Um, One thing I wanted to say, because uh, when when I found out just, you know, what a couple hours ago now, what it was your podcast was about, um, Mm -hmm. that's about the horror, uh, horror films, correct? Yes. Listen, I... Like, so it, it really struck me because I wanted to go back and put some thought into some of the things that I would say here, obviously, that there really are um, a multitude of similarities between the horror genre and this system of mass incarceration. Like, there's, like mm-hmm. because I was just thinking about that dynamic, and I'm like, there really are some serious similarities there. All right, so well, my, you know limited understanding of just being a fan 
of the horror genre, obviously you haven't created anything in that space. There's normally uh, a predatory person, group, entity, or system that is preying on the vulnerable mm-hmm. in some capacity. Um, like, you know, that is, again, from just my limited, you know, interaction of watching Saul and Friday Night 13, Friday, mm-hmm. you know, Friday the 13th and, you know, those type of movies. Uh, and when you talk about Max and Carson, that is the business model of Max and Carson Razor. It is the absolute business model. You know, our nation really needs to be cognizant of the fact that you cannot... Uh, just take away 365 years of intolerance and extinction, violence and racism and terrorism and remove it in just the subsequent 55, 57 years. Yeah. It takes an intentional movement and systemic change to remove all of that out of what's, out of what's happening. It is this system preying on the vulnerable impoverished communities, on communities of color, and more frequently it's intentionally and specifically preying on women. And that is something that is not often uplifted or highlighted, but it is absolutely what is happening. I'm sorry, again, I'm going all over the place. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, there's a lot to cover. So, you know, it's... Yeah, absolutely. You know, because every there's so many different levels and and experiences, and they get compounded. You know, so it, you know there's the there's gender issues, there's differently abled issues, there's race issues, like all of those things just build up personally. And it is worth mentioning. It is worth looking into because I think the way that we portray certain um, incarcerated peoples does change based on some of these like identifying factors. And so, you know, two people can commit similar crimes or be uh, incarcerated for similar issues, but because they exist in these two different boxes, entirely different procedures happen, right? Or, or the way that they're shown in the media can be completely different because they're two different races. 100%. 100%. Um, that is very well said. You said it very, you said it concisely. So yes, absolutely. Yes, um, and I, you know, I, I want to thank you for for talking about the horror aspect because a big part of what we have been, you know, we've been doing this show for about six years now, and a big part of why we have stuck really close to the horror genre specifically is that we feel like it has done this like a decent job of experiencing and showing certain societal traumas on screen in this way that's digestible for an audience in a way that people can look and be entertained, but also feel like, wait a second, like, you know, yeah, we can watch zombie movies and, and the fear of and a virus is terrifying. And we know that really well now, but there's also this whole idea of like conformity and, you know, loss of identity and consumerism that piles up in that as well. So I think it's like a, an amazing space for that. And what we found is actually there when we're talking about how media is not representing these things properly, is that we actually haven't found any, um, horror movies about the prison system and we are really curious as to why that could be because there's so many different stories we could be telling for that and and amplifying those stories so I wonder why we're kind of 
only siloing those stories to documentary forms? Um, I think that's an excellent point. I know that I will start writing immediately. <laughs> yes. <laughs> See if I can, uh, you know, uh, occupy that space a little bit uh, because you're right. And there's so many, like, so you think about it, like, so you find you, you find horror movies now trying to find new twists on the same thing. Like you said, zombies and, you know, you know, vampires and all that type of stuff. That whole prison... Uh, space is a, is a whole unoccupied space. I could not agree more. And one other thing that I would really like to point out when it talks about the horrors of prison, I'm currently a hospice volunteer here at the uh, institution. So while it's absolutely one of the most rewarding things that I do uh, personally, um, the horrors of it, mm-hmm. they, they are really, they, it, it really, really, really is a lot. So you know, I actually started posting about some of my experiences there. And uh, so people not being able to die with dignity mm-hmm. is really a lot. You know, it really, really genuinely is a lot. People not being able to die, not being in pain yeah, is a lot. People, um, you know, uh, 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 the lack of now I don't again I, I never want to castigate any group uh, any entire group so you do have some staff here who uh, are decent people and go out of their way to help mm-hmm. just unfortunately it is just a small minority though you know the overwhelming majority could not care less about the people of, you know because they're prisoners and they're in here they just couldn't care less about their well-being Mm-hmm. So you know you have extreme you have extreme you have extreme examples of uh, uh, you know people wind up getting sepsis because they're not getting the treatment that they're that they're needing. So the just uh, to wrap up because I want to make sure that we um, leave space for this specific question. Whenever you know we're interviewing folks, we always want to leave space for um, the question of what are ways that like a, one of our listeners or viewers could do to help. So like, what are some tools? What are some things that they should know about that they can go and do now? Like they can be active in this to support you, to support other incarcerated in- individuals and try to fix this system. Excellent. Um, first of all, thank you again for the opportunity to speak Thank you specifically for this question because uh, action steps are really what it's all about. Mm -hmm. Um, To speak about my personal situation, uh, one of the things that they could absolutely do. So, one of so in the next month or so, going to be unveiling some more evidence of my innocence. I think that this is going to be the most powerful piece as of yet. Um, Mm -hmm. So, I would like people to be aware of that and to support it. Um, there's a website, uh, uh, it's free, Tyree Wallace, and it's T-Y-R-E-E, mm-hmm. Wallace, W-E-L-L-A-C-E, mm-hmm. free, TyreeWallace.com. Okay. Uh, have, a, have a petition that's, you know, being circulated. Um, once we get to 10,000 signatures, um, and we're somewhere right around 9,000 now, once we get to about 10,000 signatures, we're going to uh, take some action steps to try to get you know, to try to secure my release. So that's how I could be helped personally okay. going there. 
And one final step for my, my personal situation, uh, uh, the, my nonprofit, SRC, which stands for Systemic Reformative Change, mm -hmm. I would love for people to go there and check that site out. And you can do that by going to We Are, spell R out, We A R E, mm -hmm. the SRC.org. That would help there. Um, uh, now, in general, to help, I, I just would like people to keep an open mind and to understand that criminality is not unique to any group of people. And if that fact is true, if we can accept that fact that nobody, that, that women are not unique to crime, that black people are not unique to crime, that uh, impoverished people are not in, that this is not a unique thing, that there, is, there are circumstances that are having people make choices that they should not make, mm -hmm. then we should focus on the root problem. What is the root cause of this? And let's work on solving those problems. And there's about to be a push to in Pennsylvania to overturn what's called felony murder. And I'm asking everybody to please understand what felony murder is, why it's wrong, why it's a horrific law that needs to be overturned. As a result of a law, as a result of the felony murder law, in Pennsylvania alone, you have over 500 women and men who are sentenced to life without the possibility of parole for murder, yet they have never even been accused of killing anyone. Mm. So felony murder, the law, please do research on the felony murder law. Learn out, learn what it is. You could, you could, you could learn a lot about the felony murder law by visiting uh, uh, the FAM website. Uh, families against uh, mandatory minimums. They okay. have a lot of information. Felony murder law. What it is? Uh, Jonathan, uh, excuse me, um, John Fetterman. He's mm -hmm. an advocate abolishing felony murder and support any measures that's going to overturn this law to have people incarcerated for murder and sentenced to die in prison, even though everyone, everyone involved in the case knows that they've never killed anyone. So then those are a couple of things that I can think of on top of my head. Yeah, absolutely. Um, again, thank you so much for your time. I'm greatly appreciative for this opportunity. Um, thank you for what you're doing. Yes, and thank you so much. I, I really, really appreciate um, you being open with me and, and talking about these issues. And um, I've learned a lot uh, myself, and I hope that this episode really helps to shine some light on the, the issues in our justice system so that we can start making some real changes. Excellent. What if we reduced the police budget and hired people who have street credibility to go in and interrupt the cycle of violence? We've seen the outcome of street violence both in terms of loss of life and in terms of decades spent in prison. There are a lot of people who were part of the game and part of street violence who've spent decades in prisons turning their lives around, including a lot of people sentenced to life without parole who are currently set to die in prison because they killed someone in retaliation for the death of a family member or a friend, for example. What if we created a fully funded, professionally run program with these returning citizens and others who were formerly part of the drug economy to intervene when a shooting happens? We could be credible messengers. We could be a positive strike force who keep an ongoing presence in neighborhoods across the city. When a shooting happens, we could reach out to people directly impacted and try to dissuade people from retaliation. 
Preventing violence is a full-time job. In addition to responding directly to crises, we could run education programs for the youth, serve as street counselors, and connect people to resources to remedy problems in their lives. We could help the kid work in the corner, prevent his grandma's foreclosure by connecting her to housing counselors. Maybe that could help him get out of the game. We could connect people who are trying to overcome addiction with drug treatment resources. And maybe our work could go beyond just stemming the tide. Our neighborhoods need healing. Maybe we could also be trained to facilitate neighborhood-based restorative justice programs where we could create some healing or at least help settle old beefs so they don't flare up again. We can stop the violence if we use our imagination and creativity, but that won't be enough. We'll need to fuel that imagination and creativity with resources. We'll need to divert money spent on policing to fund things that truly keep us safe. We might hear that these ideas are too lofty, utopian, or even expensive. But nothing we imagine, no matter how outlandish, can possibly hold any less promise or be any more costly than the way we've been going about things so far. So welcome, Pam Superville, to The Ghouls Next Door. It is a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It's my pleasure to be, to be here. <laughs> Excellent. Um, could you tell our viewers a bit about what you do, the work that you do, and what your position is? Okay. Um, the work I do, I work with justice involved men and women, boys and girls who are coming home from prison. Mm -hmm. My title is Deputy Director for the Office of Reentry Partnerships. We are the city's reentry organization. So um, in my current role, I supervise case managers, social workers, um, intake staff. Are uh, we getting ready to expand back into um, instructors? Anyone that works with helping men and women to successfully reintegrate um, in the Office of Reentry Partnerships. But I might also say, because I've started you know, from the trenches, I'm also a trench worker. So I just don't just oversee programs. I coordinate programs, but I'm also the best part of my life is going out and helping the clients that we serve. Awesome. Could you give us some examples of like what um, people who are re-entering, like some of the uh, issues or support that they need addressed to help them? Immediately, most people coming home, they will tell you they need a job and they need housing. But what we find out in our day-to-day -day life, um, people coming home sometimes need IDs. They get arrested, mm -hmm. the cops take their wallets, they have no IDs. If you have, you don't have an ID, you cannot enter a building, you cannot do anything that makes, you know, that makes sense. Most people, I mean, you, they need connection to their benefits. Mm -hmm. stamps, you know, getting their health benefits together. Um, some people, they need clothing. I mean, so the, depending on where they spent their time, like we, we work with people that come from the county prison on State Road, which is known as the Philadelphia Department of Prisons, but we also work with people coming from upstate and we also work with people coming from the federal prisons. We work with men and women. And sometimes we see the needs of the men being some, you know, different from those of the women. Like women coming into our office, um, how can I connect with DHS and how can I connect with a legal firm to try to reconnect with my kids that I lost during my incarceration? Where like most of the men are saying, how can I connect to a job? And how can I con to connect to work? But we see, I mean, everyone that comes in or doors every day, they need different things. Some people need training. Some people coming asking, I need to connect 
to um, where I can, you know, a place where I can get my GED. Some people mm-hmm. need a combination of things. So, but we're here, like, you know, to, some people need behavioral health um, support. Some people are saying, you know, I did have a drug issue before being incarcerated. I need to be connected with a substance use disorder organization before I fall back on, on how, uh, you know, on that pathway. So it's different needs of, you know, people um, based on their incarceration experience. And everybody has, you know, sometimes different needs. So what I usually say with regards to that, re-entry is not cookie cutter. So, mm-hmm. you know, Pam is not going to need the same thing that Angela needs, that Michael needs. Everybody comes in, has a different need, but we try to, to meet them where their needs are. Some people come in because we offer vocational training. We offer a forklift certification program. And people come in saying, that's what I want. I heard while I was locked up that you guys could help me to get this certification. I have my ID. I have everything, family support. Um, could you help me connect to vocational training? So it's different, you know, different types of services that we here to offer people based on what, you know, the requests are. Mm-hmm. And I mean, they're, you know, kind of just getting dropped into the middle of life and, yeah. and forced to have to like pick up and start running where they are. So exactly. that's, it, it really is like, who do you have in your corner already? And what supports you need to move forward? And that's why we sometimes we're getting ready now that it's post-COVID, we're getting ready to go back behind the walls to start letting people know who we are, where we are located, because it's amazing. Sometimes we send information into the prison to the social workers. Does that information always get to the, 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 the individuals? No, it don't. So we ask, you know, we have good relationships with both of the jails and the prisons. So we're actually getting ready to go back in, share information, share business cards, share flyers. So when you come out, because they give you two tokens, well, back in the day, it used to be two tokens. They might give you a scepter pass if they do that. But mm-hmm. the people leaving State Road, when you get out, you can come down to us. We will help you with transportation. We will help you with clothing. Um, we're trying to help people to get telephones. That's a new project that we're working on because how do you communicate if you, you don't have a telephone? So rather than just being lost and not know where to go, we get letters from people leaving the 26 state prisons. And we, you know, we have an intake um person that would respond to them and say, when you come home, come on down, we'll be here to help you, even though all you have was your transportation and the clothes on your back. So we meet people where they at and try to help them successfully reintegrate. During um, the pandemic has, like, what challenges has that brought upon you and a, a part of the incarcerated peoples as well? During the pandemic, um, what we did when we realized that the prison started releasing a lot of people, so one of my case managers and I were assigned to reach out. We got the lists, the addresses, and the phone numbers or any contact information of the people that we were being released. And during the, the two years of the pandemic, we made over probably 6,000 phone calls to people that were released, letting them know that we're here. Could we help you? What, what services do you need? And connecting them, giving them the phone numbers, and connecting them to the resources that they would have they would have needed at, at that particular time. One of the successful things that the Office of Reentry Partnerships did during COVID, I'm mean, very proud of it. All the people leaving the, the state, I mean, the county prison on State Road, we offered them a $500 COVID payment, no strings attached. As mm-hmm. long as you were released during COVID and we had your information that you were released from State Road because of our partnerships, we had their names and contacts information, we were able to offer 1,200 people a $500 COVID payment. And that was so well received. And we wish to be, you know, we had more money to even help more people. 
Yeah, I think something that I found during the pandemic is there has been this acknowledgement that we have the tools and resources to do this extra bit of help. There's, um, you know, more focus on accessibility in some of our spaces and things like that. Like we've been forced to have to rethink the processes and the way that we help or show or just exist in the world. And so I really hope that, um, like me personally, that we will continue some of those trends or be able to see the value in that even as things get to quote unquote, back to normal. Um, so that's really amazing. I'm so glad that you were able to do that for those folks who were otherwise going to be completely disconnected. And then family, I mean, just getting the phone call because, okay, you they tap you on your shoulder and say, oh, you, you're going to be released today. But a lot of times when, you know, the information we have, there, you know, some, when you get locked up, you give your family's phone number or who you can't, you know, your, your most, um, your closest relative is. And families and even individuals who are released they were very, very grateful that, that sometimes by the time they got home, their families had already told them, well, this organization called ORP has reached out and they said, if you need connections with your benefits or if you need to connect with your PO or because, you know, no movement was happening. So mm-hmm. how do I connect? How do we do these things? But we had already been a little bit preemptive and saying, this is the number that you call. This is, you know, this is how you connect to your PO. If you need clothing or whatever, we could send you send you to a place where you can get some clothing. Um, you know, there, there were food banks. A lot of people were saying we have no food. We were able to give them on a daily basis. You can go to this Broad Street Ministries on a Tuesday, or you can go to this other church on a Thursday where you can get boxes of food for abundance and give them the addresses. Um, we were able to even if you can get to our office. We were not here. Sometimes we'll come in one time, one day a week. We will give you some transportation. So whatever that the, the need that COVID had placed on people coming home from prison, we were here to, to help address it. That's amazing. I I kind of want to do like a, a step back on on the just our systems in place now. So I kind of have like this twofold question. Um, and one is uh, like, what are some of the 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 challenges that folks find themselves in when they're returning because of where they were. So like, are there resources and access and, and ways to, um, does the system support growth and change and for them to be able to um, come back and be equipped? Or do you feel like uh, in a lot of ways it is restricting them or, um, not in any way helping. Okay, the system doesn't help anything. Mm-hmm. Organizations like ours, we have to help. So, I mean, because there are so much, there's so much lack of information, and for the, I don't want to say ignorance or lack of empathy or mm-hmm. um, for justice-involved individuals that sometimes even relatives make it difficult for their loved ones returning home. So. This is why I'm grateful for the work that I've, I'm a justice-involved individual. I've been home for like 16, 18 years, came home with nothing. And I thank God, you know, that I'm able to now say I'm deputy director for the Office of Forensic Partnership. I have mm-hmm. lived experience. So I'm able to relate to the needs of people coming home. Um, some of the things that we see barriers, um, like I said, because of prejudice, um, employment, for example, that's a big mm-hmm. need. And we still have to work very diligently with employers saying, the fact that they broke the law doesn't mean that they do not deserve a chance to get a decent yes. job. There is facts. There is rea- the reality. 
if the job for which you applied relates to your crime, we would not recommend you for that job, sir. So if somebody, for example, was a bank teller, we would not send them back to work even at, a, at McDonald's as a ca cashier. But if they, they had a, a, a small drug offense and they're trying to get a job as a janitor in a hospital, why would you deprive them of mm -hmm. getting a job? So education on across the board is very important. Family members do not understand that when their loved ones come home because they've been in a in a steel cage for depending on the length of their incarceration. If you've gone upstate, you've spent more than two years incarcerated. So you can spend anywhere from two years to 10 to 20 years. We work with uh, juvenile lifers who spent most of their life in jail. So families sometimes do not realize, okay, you they're home, you're happy that they're home, but you gotta understand that they got to be deprogrammed into understanding now we have SEPTA key passes when they're left mm -hmm. with broken tokens. We gotta, they gotta understand that they don't know how to use a cell phone. They have no digital literacy skills. When you try to get a job, you see reading, you know, we hiring for cleaners, but you gotta upload your resume and you gotta do this online application and you gotta do this. Men and women coming home from prison, depending on the length of incarceration, they don't know how to do this. They wanna readjust, they wanna get back into work, work situations, but organizations like us, we have to identify these are their needs. Mm -hmm. So now we're getting ready to hold some digital literacy classes. We're helping people with mock interviews. We're helping them prepare to even understand the SEPTA system. So it's a lot of things that people coming home, the services that they need, the system doesn't know it. Family members don't know it. So organizations like ours, we are versed in re-entering the needs of justice-involved individuals. Something that we're really pushing for across the board is more trauma-informed services. Mm -hmm. What is trauma? Most people that have been incarcerated, especially or females, have been traumatized. Domestic abuse, violence, drug and alcohol. You know, so many things have resulted in them being incarcerated. You go to prison, there are not many trauma-informed trainings or programs. They lock you in a cell and you go through the process. It might be a five-year sentence. When you mm -hmm. come back, that trauma has been tripled because now you've gone through the trauma of incarceration. Jails where most of the, the CEOs are men. So we talk about this all the time with women on state road wherever. When as a female, you have your period in the middle of the night, you have to go ask a male CEO who, who can't even relate to what you're saying to get you a pattern. Sometimes they don't give it to you. These are the kinds of experiences that our women face and we have men facing similar. So the trauma that people come home is, it, it is increased. So first we gotta offer them some trauma-informed services, deprogram, breathe out. Yes, you wanna go get a job, but unless we're able to help you unravel all that stuff that's in your head, let's talk about what made you go to, made you go to jail in the first place, whether it be a male or female, we're not, help, we, we're not doing you any good. So these are some of the things that we as a re-entry service organization know that is needed. And these are some of the things that we're currently putting in place, restorative justice, trauma-informed services, you know, helping you with the basic workforce readiness instructions that you need. Mm -hmm. How do you confidently talk about your criminal record at an interview? Why aren't you getting a job? They came home, they're lazy. It's not that they come home and they're lazy. It's the fact that no one is holding their hands and helping them to overcome the barriers of, of incarceration. So, you know, like I said, the system doesn't know it, we know it. And we try to put all, you know, all the 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 the, the steps in place to help people successfully reintegrate. 
Yeah. I mean, it could be incredibly overwhelming. There's just so many issues that just stack upon each other. And if you don't have someone like supporting you or, or just helping you navigate, it's so easy to get lost. And then on top of that, you, you, mentioned this before as well it's just like this stigma that is tied to recently incarcerated peoples that it allows them to be treated terribly in the system out of the system even before the system um that could continually fuels it so that you just end up right back in and i so i what are like some what are some things that you wish people knew about people who are re-entering or people who are currently incarcerated who might not be able to, you know, be out in our lifetime, their lifetime, those kinds of things. Like, what is something that you wish people knew and understood um, by others? Most of the time, well, there is, you know, it's a, it's a statement, but it's fact. Um, 90% of the times there is no rehabilitation during incarceration. So you're left in a cell. And the conditions in in the different types of jails are really, really harsh. Yes, we've broken the law, but we are still human beings. And 90%, a lot of the people, and I, I mean, I know you're probably hearing about what's going on in state road, but it's also happening upstate. Um, since COVID, families, some of the state jails, we have people like my son is incarcerated. He's eight hours away. I've not seen my son since 2019, because at first, because of COVID, the jails weren't allowing people to come into state prisons, and now they're even limiting the number of people that can go into to visit. So it's a lot of times that when they lock you away, they put you away so far that the, the stressors of incarceration really sometimes break people down mentally. Mm-hmm. A lot of people don't understand this. They think, oh, you... And then not everybody... Here's something that's a fact, because we've seen this more and more. Not everybody that's been found guilty of a crime is guilty of a crime. Mm-hmm. So then you have that double jeopardy also. Um, people who are incarcerated, sometimes, again, they break the law because of situations, because of trauma, because of whatever. But that does not mean to say that that person is not a human being and that person does not deserve a second chance. People sometimes, like we, I'm, I'm on the board of the, um, the prison society, I'm, on one of the advisory boards, and we're hearing right now up in this in the state prisons. In addition to them not opening the doors to allow more family members to visit, where they have loved ones locked up eight. My son is locked up eight hours a week. If I have to go see my son right now in SCI Albion, we have to leave Philadelphia at one o'clock in the morning and drive for eight hours to get to that prison. And there's no public transportation that goes there. Mm-hmm. But the other thing, the other point is. When um, with, with incarcerated, with, with all incarcerated loved ones, we're hearing that those who are able to get jobs in the state prisons, the cost of commissary has gone up, say, like 30%. But have they increased the salaries, the $19, the 19 cents an hour um, salaries that they're paying the, the inmates? No, they're not. So it's a lot, it's a lot, a lot. I mean, and my son tells me, um, the food is is the, the quality of food is 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 really decreasing. They want to charge them if you get sick while you're in jail. They want to have to charge you a five dollar copay. You don't have money, so it's a lot of things that goes on behind the walls that a lot of individuals on the outside, even family members, are not aware of. Mm-hmm. If you can't support your family financially, what do you think happens? They just wallow away, and you know, they a, a strong person that broke the law, whether justified or unjustified, they could become so mentally 
deranged by the time at the end of their sentence when they come home, families can't even understand what has happened to them. So we got to just, I mean, push for our legislators to be more aware of what's going on in the county jails and in the state jails to make sure that they're doing like, I mean, regular checks and making sure that inmates are not treated as animals, even, you know, even though they're classified as people that broke the law, to make sure that there are laws in place, that they get the health benefits that they need, that they get the, the meals that they need, that, you know, families of incarcerated loved ones have accessibility to seeing their loved ones. If you mm -hmm. don't have money to make phone calls, you can't yeah. reach out to your family. So it's a lot of stuff that people, you know, the public needs to be made aware of. And like I said, when we come, when they do come home, know that it's going to take them a while to, to, to readjust into society. Know that, you know, talking buses and cell phones and ATMs, these people are not used to these things. So we got to actually understand when we say, okay, so they're hiring down at the Lincoln Center, they're looking for cleaners. And you tell your loved one, they don't even know how to navigate. When you go underground, we right here at Sunny City. When you go underground for, for um, the, the trains, you get lost. You turn mm -hmm. around because mm -hmm. you've been lost. It's simple things like this. We've had clients, we've given them maps, instructions, transportation. Okay, you go to as, as much detail as we can. And when the next thing you know, they're back at our doors. I got lost. Mm -hmm. And then no one, is at, at, no one wants to help us. So I had to ask a cop or somebody to bring me back to this office because I didn't know how to get to this job fair. So it's basic things that we tend to take for granted that men and women coming home go through. And, you know, the education, I mean, I do education to, to family members and to community people all the time about, it's like moving into a new area. You, you, you went to sleep last night in America and tomorrow morning you woke up in China. That's the experience of some of the men and women, depending, you know, if they just didn't do six months on, on state road, but they spent 10 years upstate or 20 years in a federal prison across the country, that's how it is for love. I mean, incarcerated men and women coming home. So we need to be more empathetic. We need to be more sympathetic, understand that the trauma that they've suffered is still dealing with it. And they need our support to help them kind of thaw out and deprogram themselves from that. More programs like ours are needed. Funding, they're always taking away funding from the government for reentry services are always being reduced. So mm -hmm. it's even more limited for us to offer more services to more people, to pay proficient staff, culturally competent staff to work with the population, because not everybody's culturally competent as a supervisor to work with the population that we serve. Some, mm -hmm. people them. Some people come to us because, you know, I have the degree in social work, but they really don't like to work with justice. You know, so it's all that type of stuff. So it makes it really, really difficult. And all we have to work much harder and much longer because we're dedicated to helping people doing the work. Mm -hmm. And I think there's just work that needs to be done for for folks out here to just get on that level and of that understanding of the challenges and to understand that like this is such a, a damaging thing mentally, right? Like there's being in there in that enclosed space, it affects just like the way that your brain understands information. So of course they're they're gonna get lost. You've been in this square, your brain doesn't hasn't been using the muscles that it's been using to navigate the world. And there's, like you were saying with the trauma, like these things get so compounded, it really takes patience, understanding, and just like, like you were saying, empathy to meet them where they're at and understand yeah. that it's gonna take time. And you know, I have a problem sometimes with some of the movies where they depict men and women, incarcerated men and women, 
like Orange is the New Black and all these mm -hmm. movies. I mean, more power to the people who got the jobs and whatever. But sometimes people look at these movies as a template of the reality, and that is so wrong. They really do not depict the hardships of what men and women really, you know, they try to throw a little sex in here and a little violence in here, that type of stuff. But the reality of it, that's not what it is. Sometimes you get locked down for two, three days because something happened on another block that you know totally nothing about. You don't get a chance to take a, a shower. Sometimes, you know, so it's mm -hmm. all these basic human needs that you are deprived of as a justice involved individual that sometimes even on you're so broken sometimes that when you get a 15 minute call on on, on to, to your loved ones after not talking to them for two weeks you can't even express to them you're so happy to hear their voices you yeah. put away the hurt and the pain for the 15 minutes and you go through the moment the motion and they're not even aware that you broke and you're suffering you go back to your cell and you're crying you know, they weren't able to send you money. You have no commissary. They're serving you slop. You know, it's, 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 it's you know, it's, it's just a lot. Sometimes you don't have a TV. You don't have anything. But people don't realize, well, lock them up and throw away the key. Yeah. And that mentality is not really helpful for justice involved individuals. Like I'm saying, yes, there are people who did, who, who do, you know, horrendous things and things like that. But on an overall basis, everybody deserves a second chance. And Absolutely. We, you know, like I said, we don't have a heaven or hell to put people in. When they come home after they've, they've done their time and they're trying to reintegrate, let's be empathetic to them. Let's be sympathetic. Let's have a conversation with them and not just, oh, that's a person that just came home from jail. He was locked up for 10 years on a, you know, on a murder. And I mm -hmm. mean, like I said, even with employers, going back to that, because if our employers are not willing to give opportunities, even the city of Philadelphia, give opportunities to justice-involved individuals, you opening the door for them to go back to their own ways, whether they want to or not. And then you have family members, baby mama saying, well, I took care of the kids for the last 10 years. You got to go out and get a job. But if he doesn't have a resume, if he doesn't know how to interview, if he doesn't know how to get from one part of the city to the other, if he doesn't have strong family support, how is he going to get that job? So mm -hmm. when I do sometimes, when I do um, support groups for loved ones of incarcerated people, these are the kinds of things you've got to, have patience and understanding with them. Sometimes they get a PO who is not, you know, very mean to them. You know, again, not supporting them, but if they only spit on the sidewalk, they get it, they have a chance of going back to into jail. Even some of this, you know, the professionals that are supposed to be su supporting them don't. So we just gotta understand this and be very, very empathetic to the clients that, we, that are coming. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. It's, it's an effect on your body, mind and soul. Like exactly. every place that you, like every exactly. part of them is being, is harmed. Yeah. And, um, the system is, is cruel and unusual. It, it really is. And there's no part of it that is rehabilitating. There's no part of it that is kind yeah. or understanding. Yeah. And it's really, we're just pocketing people away. They're not, people to you know the society anymore like we could just put this label on them and that only continues the harm and then you you know you step away from that and you even look at the bigger picture and you think about who is most likely to be incarcerated how right. are we how are they getting there right like what resources are we missing in our communities that end up harming them and putting them in that space in the first and place and i mean look at like we're looking at the substance use disorder that is ravaging our city and ravaging the country and when you look at the research, there's been research over years. I was looking at some of this stuff before I got on. Um, going back all the way to 2009, they were talking about substance use disorder in men and women, but more women 
in addition to the trauma of domestic abuse and you know prostitution and and all that type of stuff substance use is also a major issue because that's how a lot of people self-medicate because nobody mm-hmm. really knows of the stuff that they're going through in their day-to-day life so that's a that's a major issue and society is not paying attention to these things and then you have big farm creating all these new drugs you don't have to smoke weed and smell smelly you can go take a pill and before you know it you're addicted and you're falling by the wayside and you're up at k and a and nobody really see how quickly that spiral has occurred mm-hmm. so a lot of the men i mean the numbers we were just hearing even at, on pdp that the numbers of, of, of women is increasing because a lot of sisters are going through a lot of trauma out here in this mm-hmm. and get jobs too many men are locked away you know it's a lot and you know they're relating to Sometimes it's prescribed drugs. It starts off like that, and then it ends up being into whatever you can buy on the streets. And before you know it, you know they're in jail, and that revolving door keeps going. So that's a whole other conversation with the substance use disorder, tied into behavioral behavioral health issues, tied into the trauma, tied into mental health. Mm-hmm. A lot of the men and women that are coming out of the prisons right now have a combination of all of those things, or at least one of those those health issues, not physical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, a, you know, society's not even thinking about it. We're not talking about it. We just keep creating all these drugs, you know, and not really seeing the effect that it's having without proper control on the population, on our men and women in our neighborhoods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's there's a lot of talk, um, specifically even here in Philadelphia, of you know looking and trying to like you know have more law enforcement or to have these like reactive approaches instead of like looking at where is the core, like what where are these issues stemming from, what are the issues that we need to address that could over time, like yeah, it'll take a it will take longer, right? It's not this bandaid issue that we could just hit into submission, these are structural systemic problems that are just going to continue to seep and infect this entire community unless we address those issues right there at the core. And I I agree that it's not being talked about as much or in a way that feels positive, like people are going to understand that. No, no, no. You know, I mean, like I said, I mean, the question is where big farms should be held responsible. Mm Mm-hmm. I because agree. it's not like back in the day where people, okay, you smoke weed or you smoke cookie. They're telling us heroin is not even a, the, the drug of choice now. It's mm-hmm. all these pharmaceuticals, you know, pressed pills and all that. They say fentanyl coming in from Mexico. I mean, who's controlling, you know, the receipt of all the, it has to come through somebody's port or somebody's, um, somebody's gateway, somebody's airports, where, who's controlling, mm-hmm. you know, the influx, where, where these things are coming from. Who's 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 guarding the guard, like the song says. Yeah. You know, but nobody's paying attention. And then it's filtering down into communities. It's just like the the guards. Where yeah. are not you know, so it's like I said, people who are supposed to be responsible for oversight are not doing their jobs. And then all the trickle down effect is affecting all communities and health. Hence we have the violence and then you lock them up and you throw away the key. You're closing down schools, you're taking away like we had a, a presentation a couple about a year ago with you know the kids some kids who had the potential of being locked up for serious crimes and the little girl was saying she said right now it's easier for me to buy a gun than for me to buy a pair of Jordans she said they've closed down the parks we can't mm-hmm. go to the library we can't go to the pools and then when we go down on South Street she said if people behind me start running I start running too and the next thing I know I'm locked up, yeah. and I'm locked up that I have a gun so it's so many different societal issues that are affecting our communities that we as 
voters and, 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 and members of the community and upstanding because everybody wants to turn their head the other way and not really talk about the hard, the hard issues that are, that, that are currently raising its ugly head in our communities. Where mm -hmm. are the kids supposed to go? You know, schools are closing, libraries are closing. Men and women, I mean, you know, more men are locked up than, than ever before. Their mothers are, so the, it's, it's a lot of issues. It's a lot, a lot of issues. And, you yeah. know, we just gotta, and then when you talk to them, eventually some of them have been traumatized from the cradle. Mm -hmm. you know, some of these kids have been traumatized from the cradle. Don't know love, never had anybody to ever, ever nurture them. Their grandmothers brought them up. So it's a lot of different issues that are really contributing to the end results of the violence and the substance use disorder that we currently see in the city. Yeah, yeah, it didn't happen overnight. No, right? like, this is this is generations, and and this has hap been happening, and we are at this this point. I feel where it is really coming to a head, and yes. we have to like address it. And so, one of the the biggest things about our show that we we try to implement um, whenever we do interviews, and even just like when we cover um, heavy topics like this, where you can feel so overwhelmed by the situation, and you feel like, well, what can I do? Right. Like I, you know, I'm not in there. I'm not like one of these tools to, to help, but what are some things that like people who are listening to this show um, that you suggest they could do to help um, alleviate some of the, the stressors or um, to support people who are re-entering? I mean, if you are aware of someone that has come home, try to have a conversation with that person rather than judge them. You know what I'm saying? I mm -hmm. mean, you know, I don't want to go, I'm, I'm faith-based and I go to church and my, we do a lot of stuff with, 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 with people coming home. But I'm saying a lot of times, I think ignorance of the, the, the situation is no excuse for just dissing people. Um, trying to be more aware of, of your environment and trying to, to, like I said, if you are a voter talking to your politicians about what's going on, trying to, to, to understand the core reasons for the situation rather than just let social media and the news and what's out there affect your, your, your judgment calls. If you are an employer, if you are a teacher, if you are a social worker, I mean, think within yourself outside what you're getting paid to do. How can I help this person that I no, my cousin came home, or the you know the young the young lady on the block. I see her walking around. Could I have a conversation with her? You know, you know, mm -hmm. is there anything? You know, my job is hiring. Sometimes they don't even know. I can make a recommendation or let her know that she, if she come down, I will I will vet her. You know, to even get a little Christmas job or whatever. Try to be more. Take our heads out of the clouds. Take mm -hmm. our eyes off the phones. And start opening our minds and our spirits to the communities that we find ourselves living in, because we never know and tomorrow it may affect our, our, our own families. So I'm saying just, just be more aware. Just be more aware of what the, 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 the realities of, of, of the negative situations, the cause of the negative situations are, and see within yourself, how can I make a contribution? I can't tell everybody because, again, like I say, it's not cookie cutter. But as we go along life, too many people, and I see it all the time, too many people in their phones. Too many people not stopping to ask a person, can I help you? Too mm -hmm. many people ready to make the judgment call, lock them up and throw away the key because they, they, they're evil or whatever it is. And if we could be, as a community, go back to it takes a village, 
that's not a cliche. That's a fact of life. Mm-hmm. If we could be more village people and be more aware of our environment and our neighbors and the people that we see passing every day, I'm saying that a lot of this could be reduced. We, we won't quell it. It won't go away totally, but a lot of this would be reduced. Men and women come home and they tell us, nobody in my neighborhood talks to me. Nobody talks to people anymore. You know, I'm, you know, sometimes they say, I'm trying to find, just ask a question. And everybody's mm-hmm. going so quickly or everybody's in their phones. We can't even ask a question. Mm-hmm. But until I do something negative, then everybody comes. You know, so we as a people, we just got to be more aware. Try to go back, like I said, become more village members rather than individuals who are so caught up with social media and, and, and modern technology. Mm-hmm. Reconnect. With, yes, absolutely. Um, and where can uh, people learn more about your organization and, and to support you? We are all we are located at 1425 Art Street. Mm-hmm. We are the Office of Reentry Partnerships. Awesome. And is there uh, I because we're going to we're going to close up this uh, again. Thank you so, so much for, for having this conversation. Talking uh, no, I really, really appreciate it. Um, it's it's so important, and it's something that I feel very strongly about myself. Um, while we were working on this uh, series, we've you know covered a lot of like uh, mental health issues. We've talked yeah. about some societal that is, issues. That is, that is big. That is really, really big. Yes, and so um, you know, and and I'll say this: when we were looking for media, like we still even haven't uh, nailed down. There isn't really. Uh, media that is commentary on the incarceration incarceration system that isn't a documentary like we haven't been able to find fiction work that is is really questioning that except um uh wendell and wild by jordan peele the right. claymation that is pretty new and that it swept under the radar but uh actually surprisingly does talk about the incarceration system in this really like you know, digestible way. So I think we might end up covering that, but it really has been a challenge. I think, you know, other than those really big documentaries that we definitely value, um, there hasn't been a lot of discourse about it. And so I'm hoping that we, you know, do see more information about that, that people do reconnect with their communities and also just stop to think, right. To just challenge what we've been told, challenge what we've been, you know, told to, to, to think and, and, expect of people um, and really look at it. And I think once you do and you stop and you look and you just think, uh, it all becomes very clear what the problem is. And it's really hard to defend a system like this. I can, I, there's nothing that anyone could say that I'd be like, oh, of course we should have this. Like there's no part of me that feels that way. And so, um, yeah, so I, I, I just really, really thank you. Um, I think Asada as well um, and your organization was able to, you know, connect us um, with Tyree. So we have that interview as well. So right. um, uh, listeners, please, please check them out. Do the work, you know, educate yourself, listen. Um, we will be including a lot of different links and ways to support these different organizations so that they can continue doing the amazing work that they're doing, but that you can also learn what is going on. So thank you so and much. Before Pam. we go, I mean, to, I just want to give you a website also. Oh, so absolutely. It's www.filla.gov backslash reentry. R-E-E-N-T-R-Y. And one word that I'd like to give to everyone listening, think about it, Google it, research it, and that word is trauma. Mm -hmm. 
every single one of us have been affected by trauma. And the justice system, people involved in the justice system have been traumatized. And if we could recognize what trauma is and start thinking about meditating on that word, we will understand and probably relate to justice involved individuals a whole, a whole and even Absolutely. our own selves, because we would start take doing a little bit more self-care to us for ourselves and the people around us. But think about the word trauma and mm-hmm. how trauma is affecting society today. That's so true. Yeah, trauma informed care and trauma, uh, all of that is 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 a big staple in in what we do on our show too. Is is really highlighting how it affects us, how it affects us mentally, how it affects like the the choices that we make and the way that we interact with people and in the world. So absolutely, I agree with that. That's amazing advice, and um, you've been so informative and very helpful. Um, so thankful to have you join us. Um, but thank you so much, Pam. And- I appreciate being here. And if you need me again, please reach out. I'll be happy to continue this, you know, this conversation because, like I said, it's it's much needed. And um, you know, thank continue doing the good work that you know your organization is doing. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for watching and listening to The Ghouls Next Door on this special episode where we interviewed two folks doing work for those incarcerated and re-entering. I hope that this was educational for you and that you enjoyed it. Please let us know what you think and tune in in the new year for new content. And as always, don't get married. Delete your kids.